0: Good morning, good morning, good morning, Discover Church. How are we feeling at 1045? Yes. Good, good, good. Everybody feeling fat and happy from Thanksgiving? Fat. Yeah. <laughs> Brian says, I feel fat. Not very happy though, I guess. <laughs> Just fat. Okay. Well, they'll be going to counseling later this week. Uh, hey, is it okay if I have a little moment of true confession um, this morning? Sure. Yeah, good. I'm going to do it. I'm going I'm to do it anyway. <laughs> Uh, How many of you guys have ever uh, accidentally overdosed on NyQuil? Yeah, I did that last night unintentionally. And uh, I took the recommended dosage and I woke up this morning, I had a little sniffle last night and normally like growing up in my house, NyQuil was like the cure-all for everything. You know, you got a stomachache, take NyQuil. You got a headache, take NyQuil. You got a cold, take NyQuil. You got an ear infection, take NyQuil. You got a broken leg, go to the doctor, but take NyQuil first. And so anyway, so that's kind of been a go-to. Anyway, I, uh, I took some NyQuil last night and I woke up this morning. Jess goes, how are you feeling? And I go, uh. Oh. So I'm feeling like really medicated. Like I was walking around the office this morning. I was like clipping doors as I was walking by. And um, I had a hard time enunciating, like enunciating words in the first service. So we're going to have some fun this morning. Uh, so just kind of precursor, letting you know what's going on with me. Somebody asked me after the first service, like, you feeling better? I go, no, my fingertips are still buzzing. Um, so it's going to be interesting. Let me ask you a question as we get started this morning. Um, what, what image comes to your mind when you think of the word Advent? I want you to think of that. Think about what comes to mind when you come to Advent. And as you think about that, I, let me tell you what, what you know. my journey with Advent is. I somehow made it 36 years of living and 16 years of being a pastor Without ever knowing what Advent was, um, in fact, I every time I heard the word Advent, I made a mental association. Oh, that's that's like what that's like what Catholics do. They do Lent for Easter and then Advent for Christmas. No offense to Catholics, but I, I've never observed Lent and I certainly never observed um, Advent either. Um, and so, um, it was really hard for me to see Advent as being anything more than just. Um, kind of a ritualistic thing that that people do from time to time without ever really understanding what the meaning of it was. And so if you are like me, allow me to share a couple things that I've learned about Advent. Um, Advent is a word that actually means arrival. So when you speak of the advent of something, you're talking about its arrival. It can apply to anything, the advent of the television, the advent of internet. Um, In this case, we're talking about the advent or the arrival of Jesus, Um, And Advent, generally speaking, is observed, uh, starts the the fourth Sunday before uh, Christmas and is observed not just by Catholics, but apparently uh, many Christian denominations as a way to focus and prepare their heart for the celebration of Jesus' birth. All of that sounds great. I think it's good and important that we celebrate Jesus' birth. Um, But if I can just be really, really real, um, me thinking about Jesus as an eight-pound, six-ounce newborn baby doesn't really do a whole lot to motivate and inspire my faith. I mean, I get it. I understand the virgin birth. That's a really big deal. And the miracles and like, I get all of it, right? I understand it. But thinking about Jesus as a baby doesn't cause me to go, oh yeah, let's go storm the gates of hell with a water pistol. It just doesn't. Now, when I think about what happens 30 years later, where he kicks Satan in the teeth and throat chops death and defeats sin and death forever, and we no longer have to have to go to hell if we trust in Christ, and and we get to know that we can live eternally, forever in glory with God, forever, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord Almighty, let's go. All right, like that can get me jacked up. But thinking about uh, newborn baby Jesus, see, I'm telling you, we'll have some issues this morning. Thinking about newborn baby Jesus doesn't really do a whole lot for me. I think a lot of us, we get swept up in the celebration of Christmas, uh, whether it's the, the traditions with family, the food, the, the travel, um, the, the giving, receiving of gifts. Um, we, we even think about the, the celebration of Jesus' birth. I think a lot of us, we can get so caught up in, in the good things of celebrating Jesus's birth that we could actually miss out on the secondary focus of Advent that speaks not just of the arrival of Jesus as a baby born in a manger, but his arrival to come as a king over his kingdom. In one of our services last year in the month of December, Erica was up here and she was talking about Advent. And if I can be really honest, I was thinking, what the heck are we talking about Advent for? We're in a Catholic church. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things, like there's lots of things that I think that I don't ever say out loud to anybody because it's just best I keep it to myself. Um, But, you know, Erica was talking about it and as she was talking about it, I was like, all right, you know, just shut up, internal voice, just shut up and listen. Now allow yourself to be led by somebody else. And she made a comment that really struck me as interesting and she said that we live as a people suspended between two Advents. And I heard that and I thought, what the heck is she talking about? I mean, I know the first coming of Jesus, second coming of Jesus, but I didn't make any correlation that Advent was in any way connected to either of those two things. And so I spent the next several weeks really kind of diving in and studying and, and learning like what Advent is and what it's all about and what the purpose of Advent is. And and what I began to realize is that um, the, the, the Advent creates for us an incredible opportunity. If we, if we, prepare accordingly. If we observe accordingly, the advent allows us to be able to embrace this incredible promise, this incredible truth that Jesus did come once as a child, but the second time he is going to come back and he's going to come back, not just as a savior, as God Emmanuel, but he's going to come back as King and God Almighty and the, the, the leader of the nations of the armies of God. And right there between those two things is where we find ourselves where the first advent serves as the first pillar and a foundation for our faith that we're gonna, we're gonna learn a little bit about today. And the second advent serves as the second foundation of our faith that points us to where we're going. And we live on the sturdy line, anchored and clipped, secure, with a hope that is built in the confidence of what happened in the first advent that gives us, that gives us a reason to have hope for what God talks about in the second advent. And so as we enter into this season, what I want for you for this Advent season is I hope that you would be able to experience Advent as, as something more than just a ritualistic thing that, that some Christians do at Christmas. Instead, it would be my hope that it would be an opportunity for you to, to reconnect and, and, and establish a, a new perspective and understanding in your relationship with God and not just in your relationship with God, but in the world around you. And i titled um, today's message, A Question, that I think is critical for us to be able to to bypass Advent being another religiosity, ritualistic thing that we do to allowing Advent to become a critical component in our annual calendar of life that for us to be able to appreciate and understand God. And here's the question that I think makes it all the difference in the world. And the question is this, where are we made for? Now, that seems like an odd question. I mean, that's not a question that we normally say a lot. I mean, you might say, where am I going? Or what am I made for? Or why am I here? But I don't think that any of those are are the pertinent questions that we need to ask. I think that we need to ask the question, where are we made for? And as as we walk through this Advent season, I'm excited for us to walk through this together because as we answer this question, we have to go to the Bible and we open up to the earliest pages of the Bible. What we read in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two um, is we, we see God's original intent. We see God's original design, not just for creation as a whole, but we see God's original intent, his design for humanity as a whole. And what we see in Genesis chapter one and chapter two, if I can summarize the, the whole of those two chapters is we see that God has created in perfect order, total perfection, a place that is like paradise. A place where, where all of creation works in perfect harmony and unison with one another, where man lives in perfect harmony and unison with creation and man walks in perfect harmony and unison in a relationship with their God. And this, is, this is a paradise and God calls this place Eden and when we read Genesis 1 and 2 we, we begin to understand that the answer to the question where were we made for we were made for Eden. We were made for this this picturesque perfect paradise. I don't know what comes to your mind when when you think of paradise. But what comes to my mind when I think of paradise like I could stay there for a while. And what we read as we dive a little bit further into Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 we read something that allows us to have a better appreciation of what what does it mean that we were made for Eden? What, What does that mean? Genesis chapter two, verse seven, God says this, as he's creating man, he says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. What does this mean? Well, what it means is, is that the moments between your first breath and your last breath are not the sum total of your life. It's just a blip on the radar of what God intends for your life. You go, well, hold on, preacher man, that doesn't make much sense because my life is defined by the things that happen on the dash, on my headstone, the moments between my first breath and my last breath, but but that's not true. We can understand what God is intending for us here. What we see is that until God breathed his breath into man, man did not exist. What God did when he breathed his breath into man is that God did something different with humanity than what he did with all of the rest of creation. All of the rest of creation was created at the speed of thought. There's the sun, boom. There's the stars, boom. There's the water, boom. There's the land, boom. There's the frogs, boom. There's a duck-billed platypus, that's cool, boom. Right? And, and so God creates all of these things at the speed of thought. But what we learn in Genesis chapter two is that God does something different when it comes to man, that God crafts man, God formed man, God molded man. God took his time in creating humanity. And after he was done creating humanity, he looked at what he created and it wasn't what it needed to be yet. And so what God did on humanity was something that he did not do in any other part of creation. He breathed onto it. And his breath brought life to the dust. His breath animated the particles and brought it into something that, that was alive like all the rest of creation that would move about like so much of the rest of creation could, 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 could think and, and do things like much of other creation. But what made man different than all of creation is that when God breathed on man, he gave man a soul. And it makes us as humans altogether different, altogether separate from the rest of society. And when we understand this and what we understand is, is that the physical form that we borrow between our birth and our death is just a micro expression of the macro picture that God wants us to see. See, the truth is, is regardless of what society says and pop culture says, regardless of what your friend thinks, what your mama said, regardless of what you said to your mama, here's the the reality, There is a truth that we've got to to wrap our brains around that God wants us to understand in Genesis chapter two, verse seven. And and I can't say it better than, than, than this guy did. He's a 19th century French philosopher and Jesuit priest. His name is Teilhard de Chardin. And I nailed that name and you can't prove me otherwise. And this is what he said. He says, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Now, growing up in Arkansas, when we would hear something like that, we would often say, now say what now? You're gonna have to say that one more time for me. He says, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. You see, what God did with humanity that made us different is God did not make us as just a physical being. Understand this, that God created the physical form, but it was nothing until God breathed his spirit into it. And he created us as humans, as spiritual beings, altogether different than the rest of creation. And what that means for us is that we as spiritual beings are living in a temporary physical reality and everything about our temporary physical reality revolves around what happened at the first advent. The moment where eternity came down and touched time. The moment when God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth when god stepped out of being just in the spiritual realm to stepping into the physical realm. And we learn about this in Luke chapter two, verse six, it says, so it was while they were there that the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and they wrapped him in swaddling cloths and they laid him in a manger because there was no room for them. In the end, these, these two verses are what theologians refer to as the incarnation of Jesus. It's the moment where Jesus is in all of his eternal power and eternal Godhead put on human form and it allowed his eternal power to be temporary momentarily for his time on earth to be limited in some way by the physical form and his arrival onto the scene as the eternal, all-powerful God who takes on human flesh. He did so for the express purpose of bringing hope and healing to the world that is broken. And in the first advent, what happened 2,000 years ago affects your daily life more than you realize. It is affecting you right now. It is currently 1121 on November 27th, 2022 AD. Now, I did a little class exercise in the first service and we didn't do well. Who knows what AD stands for? After death, you are speaking as a true American. The world doesn't revolve around your English. AD is an abbreviation of a Latin term that stands for Anno Domini. Anno Domini is a Latin term literally translated in English as the year of our Lord. So it would be appropriate to say that it is now 1122, on November 27th, 2022 in the year of our Lord. Perhaps you knew this, but did you know how this got started? This got started in 525 AD by a Scythian monk named Dionysius Exegus, which also nailed that name, who wanted to establish a proper time for, for him and all of his monk friends to celebrate Easter. And so what he did in 525 is he began to open up the pages of history and he began to, um, to nail down the time of the first advent, the time of Jesus' birth. And from the time of Jesus' birth that we just read about in Luke chapter two, he began to count forward. And he established that everything before that um, was before the birth of Jesus and everything after that was after the birth of Jesus. He goes, "So what? Why does that matter?" Well, because he began to establish the beginnings of a dating system that would eventually become, in the ninth century, begin to build popularity um, across the world, across people of different nations and languages and faith backgrounds. And now his dating system is the most popular, almost exclusively renowned system that the entire globe uses now. So that every single aspect of our daily lives is built on the first advent. Your doctor's appointment, your scheduled vacation, your performance review, your alarm clock that went off this morning is built around the moment that we just read about in Luke chapter two, when the virgin conceived and bore a child and they called him Emmanuel. Our lives are built around the thing that happened that changed all of human history when Jesus showed up onto the earth. But I want you to understand why it changed human history. Because Matthew chapter one, verse 23 says, behold, the virgin shall bear a child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You see up until this point, God had exclusively organized and orchestrated and interacted with the Jews. The Jews were his chosen people. God did not really interact with people of other nations or other people groups. In fact, God established a set of rules that you maybe have heard of before called the Ten Commandments that tried to help his people understand how to live. And the first two commandments were built for the express purpose that they do not become overly concerned or interconnected with other people, other nations, other places, or other gods. Because God knew that these other little G gods are not the same as him the first two commandments, God establishes this. The first commandment is that you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, God tells them, don't make any idols, don't make any carved images to worship instead of me. Now, why would God do this? Is God just jealous? No, he's not. God knows that the devil of hell will do everything he can to get people's eyes and focus off of the one true God. Remember we've talked about we talk about this verse a lot John chapter 10 verse 10 the bible says that the devil's desire his aim his goal his mission his strategy is to steal kill and destroy what better way to steal kill and destroy people than to satisfy their spiritual longings that is in the inside ingrained and created by God, a void to be filled only by him. What better way to satisfy that spiritual hunger than with something that looks and feels and sounds like it's true, but it's laced with poison. You see, Jesus helped bring clarity in this when he was on the earth. Jesus said this in John 17, three, he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, here's what God desperately wants us to understand. This is what Jesus wants us to understand. This is what the Bible wants us to understand. We are not all connected to the same mountain, just taking different trails up. They are not all the same gods. Jesus would go elsewhere in John 14, six and make it even more exclusive, say, listen, I am the way and the truth and the life and nobody, gets to God. Nobody gets to the top of the faith mountain unless you follow me. And so what God wants us to understand, what he wanted the Jews to understand, listen, there are gonna be people who are gonna to proclaim to follow these other gods and they're gonna to seem to be appealing and appetizing and powerful and, 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 and say and make promises to do things that, that I've not made promises to you to do. And it's gonna feel right. It's gonna feel good, but you need to be concerned. You need to be aware. You need to be hearing danger because those are false gods. They are little g gods that do not have the power and the authority that I have as the one true God the reality of the first advent isn't just that God stepped out of heaven into earth. The bigger reason why the first advent is so pivotal and changed the landscape of human history is when we realize who the us is and God with us. And God gives us a glimpse of this in Luke chapter two, when an angel shows up to a group of shepherds and tells them about Jesus's birth. It says this in verse 10, then the angel said to him, do not be afraid, but for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, who is the us? They will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Is that that God with us as in God with the Jews? No. Is it God with us, the people who who only follow a, a, a certain religion a certain way? No. No, God with us is all people. God wants wants all people with all backgrounds and and all histories and, and all perspectives to understand that he, the one true living God, has come to make a way to have a relationship with all people for anyone that would come to him. And this is good news for us because if this were not the case, then not a single one of us would be able to have the relationship with God that we do today unless of course you are of Jewish descent, in which case I apologize, you get to classify as one of these exceptional few. But the fact that God came in the form of his son, in the form of a baby into the earth at the first advent, not not just Emmanuel, God with us, but Emmanuel, God with us, God with all of us. This is what shaped and changed the course of human history. Now, I would be willing to venture a guess that you are at least partially aware of some of the details of the first Advent. It would be difficult to spend much time in America um, and, and not be somewhat aware that there's a group of people that might exchange gifts and presents and have hot chocolate or hot cocoa or whatever you call it, um, but, but celebrate Jesus as the reason for the season. But I often wonder, as I have spent the last year thinking about this and, and processing through this, How many of us are aware of the reality that there will be another Advent? Jesus made this promise in John 15, 28. He said, you have heard me say that I'm going away and coming back to you. Jesus said on multiple occasions that he was going to go away, but that he was gonna return and come back. And I wonder as we prepare ourselves for Christmas and as we stress out about our shopping lists and we try to get some things tomorrow on Cyber Monday and, and we think about our travel plans and whether or not flights are gonna be delayed or, um, or how much gas is gonna be or, 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 or any of the things, I wonder, I wonder in the midst of all of it, even, even if we might take the time to celebrate Jesus as the reason for the season and, and take time to remember that he was born of a virgin on that, on that lonely night, on that silent night and it, and it brought joy to the world and we sing all of the Christmas, Christmas carols, we sing all the Christmas songs. I wonder how many of us in the midst of what we do in the process of getting ready and then celebrating Christmas, how many of us are aware that Jesus promised that he would come back? You see, the first time Jesus came at the first advent, he came to bring peace. But at the second advent, Jesus is not going to come bringing peace. Jesus is going to come bringing war. And what I'm about to read to you is gonna be a little disconcerting. It's probably going to cause at least one, perhaps both of these emotions. There will be some of us that will hear what we're getting ready to read and go, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And there are some of us that are gonna be a little caught off guard and feel uncomfortable about it. Let's read this and I'll explain why we have those emotions. So much in the Bible is written about the second advent. There's, you can find it in Thessalonians. Jesus talked about it in the gospels. The book of Revelation is almost exclusively written about the second advent. There's a whole lot of weird, confusing stuff in there. If you get it all figured out, let me know. I'd love to learn from you. Um, but but it, it, it's, it's some cool, it's some weird, it's confusing stuff. But this is what we can be certain of that the second advent will not be mistakable and nobody's gonna gonna miss it. Revelation 19 verse 11 says this, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written on him that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on their white horses. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword with it that he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you are here today and and you are somebody who um, you love Jesus and you're following Jesus, you read something like this and perhaps you've done a little bit of studying and you understand a little bit about what's coming with the second advent and you would read this and you would hear this and you would go, man, yes, praise God, amen, come on Jesus, whenever you're ready, I'm ready to go now. I can be honest with you, there's a lot of times where I'm like, Lord, I really wish you just like, now would be a good time. When Jesus comes, he's he's gonna come to make war. And that sits uneasy with us with the God that we read about, the God of love, the God of grace, the God of kindness, the God of mercy. But I want you to understand to help us make sense of this, there's three things that Jesus is gonna do when he comes back. At the second advent, Jesus is gonna set up his kingdom on earth. No longer is it just gonna be a spiritual kingdom. No longer is it gonna be this kind of ethereal thing that we can't see, we can't touch it, it's not tangible. But Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna set up his, his kingdom on earth physically. Here's the second thing that Jesus is gonna do. Jesus is going to vanquish his enemies. He is going to eliminate and eradicate his enemies. And this is the part of us that a lot of us go, yes, because when we look across the world and we see the evil that happens, we see wickedness that happens and, and we see things that just seem unjust and, and justice always seems to be perverted and, and, and tainted by, by posturing or politics and, and, and all this stuff happens where, 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 where it just doesn't seem right, it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem good. And so, so some of us who, who know and love and follow Jesus would go, yes, Lord, I cannot wait for you, for you to vanquish your enemies and finally wickedness to be gone and the devil of hell to be defeated and, and it's all gonna be said and done with, it's all gonna be over. God, I can't wait for that day. Can you please just make it happen now? But where it begins to be disconcerting is when we understand who God's enemies are. Because God's enemies aren't just the people that you think are evil. God's enemies are anybody who does not hold, uphold his standard. Do You know what his standard is? It's perfection. God's standard to have a relationship with him is perfection. God's standard to be able to enter into his heaven when our time on earth has expired is perfection. Here's where that's challenging and troubling. None of us meet the standard. Every single one of us have done something wrong. Every single one of us has sinned against God. Every single one of us have done things that even though you might be able to justify what you did or how you did it or why you did it, God makes it very, very clear that our righteousness is like filthy rags in comparison to him. And what that means for us is that all of us who have not received the grace of God through the the death of Jesus on the cross, we will be considered his enemy, not his friend. You go, hold on a second, but I'm a good person. Can I just tell you, Jesus said this when somebody came up to him and they called him good teacher. He said, why do you call me good? Because there is only one that's good and that's God. And what that means for us is that if we don't meet God's standard of perfection, then we will be on the receiving end of him vanquishing his enemies. And so God makes another promise. God tells us the third thing that Jesus will do. Jesus will reward those who follow and trust him in his new eternal kingdom. You see, for those of us that trust in Jesus for salvation and, and don't just believe, but we do, then we're going to be rewarded in heaven. I heard um, something this last week of a, a young man who's getting ready to go be a missionary um, in the Middle East with his new wife. When he was in middle school, he was in my youth group and had an opportunity to disciple him. And I really can't take any credit at all um, because he's grown and learned a lot since, since I knew him. But he was speaking this week, this last week to a group of young adults um, as they're getting ready to go to the Middle East. And he said something that really struck me. He said, do you realize that it is only in this life that we get to make sacrifices for our God? That in the next life, we no longer will need to make sacrifices because we will rule and reign with God in, in heaven in eternity, And the things that determine where our position is, where we rule and reign will be determined by the things we say, the things we do, the things we sacrifice for his glory, for the world's good and our joy in this lifetime. Because once this lifetime is over, that's it. There is no longer any opportunity to make sacrifices for our God. Because what God is gonna do when he comes back, when Jesus comes back, he's gonna reward those of us who have followed him and trusted him faithfully. And what we learn is that there's a whole lot of things that we can't fully learn. There's a whole lot of things that we can't fully understand. But what we can't understand is that when we read the end of the book of Revelation, we realize that the end of Revelation ends exactly where the beginning of Genesis began. Where mankind is once again living in perfect harmony with God and God's creation. And it is the reality that the first advent took place, the reality that Jesus came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again. It's the reality that we we build our schedules and we set our clocks by. It's that reality that gives us confidence in the second advent that God has promised to bring. So I want to come back to our original question Where are we made for? Well, when we piece it all together, what we learn is this, that we were made to live eternally in the presence of God in paradise. I don't know about you, but when I think about living in eternity in paradise, that sounds kind of okay for me. But when we get our heads out of the clouds, we are once again smacked with a cold, harsh slap of reality that we do not live in paradise. No, we live on earth. And if our planet that we live on was like our house when people come by uninvited, if someone was to stop by our planet uninvited, we would say, well, you know, sorry for the mess. If we would have known you were coming, we would have cleaned it up a little bit. And so here we live on earth, suspended between these two Advents. We live in the waiting of what is to come. And I'm convinced that if we will allow ourselves the opportunity to observe Advent, not just as a ritualistic religiosity kind of thing, but allow ourselves to fully embrace the truth of these two Advents and what it means for our lives, that I believe that once a year, as we observe this process, we will allow ourselves to be reminded of a truth that our souls instinctively understand. And it is this, that this world is not our home. Can I tell you something today? It doesn't matter if you and Jesus are, are, are like peas and carrots, Forrest and Jenny. It doesn't matter if you and Jesus are like super tight and super close, or maybe you're here today and like, listen, preach man, I ain't even sure I even believe in Jesus. That's okay, I'm glad you're here. But here's what I want you to understand. Whether you believe in God or not, whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you've been saved by Jesus or not, there is still something inside of you that knows this world is not your home because when you look across the landscape of what happens in our world, you see chaos, you see devastation, you see destruction, you see another mass shooting, you see another mass murder, you see another terrorist attack, you see another person that has taken advantage of the system, you see other people posturing for political gain, making it sound like they care about our country or they care about the world when really all they care about is their power. And you see corruption and you see power and you see all of these stuff that happens and something inside of you ask the question, God, why does this place suck so much? Why does it have to be so filled with pain? Why does it have to be so filled with selfishness? Why does it have to be so filled with ego? Why are there so many good people who are experiencing so many bad things? And I want you to understand why. The reason why your soul instinctively knows this is because your soul knows, whether you acknowledge it or not, that you was created by God to be in harmony with God and that you were created for Eden and where you currently live is not that place. And it doesn't matter if you pick up and move to a different part of the neighborhood, if you move to a different part of the country or a different part of the world, you're not gonna be able to move into that paradise. It doesn't matter if you do enough good things. Listen, I I hope everybody shows up and serves this Saturday as we minister to people and meet the needs of people in our community. But I can tell you this, you could spend every day for the rest of your life meeting the needs of homeless people and helping poor and and widows and orphans and people who are struggling and down and out. You could spend the rest of your life doing that stuff and you would never be able to justify being able to, to meet the perfect standard of God or you would never be able to make right the things that are wrong about this place? Because here's what the Bible says. And God, God has not tried to hide this from us. God has pasted this all over the Bible so that we would see it, we would be reminded and that we would know that this world, this life is not all there is. This world is not our home. I don't fit here this doesn't make sense here i don't like all the things here even on the best day when everything lines up just in perfect harmony and you go oh man yes that was the day that day was awesome this was exactly what i needed but after the day is over the moment passes and off we go into chaos off we go into pressures and expectations and 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 the and the need to pay the bills and to go to work and to, and to apologize first and to, and to try to not be angry and not to give somebody the bird when they cut me off in traffic and 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 all all of these things, like we, we go right back into the chaos of this world and God has been wanting us to know all along, I breathed into you a soul that was never meant to be bound by your physical experience here on earth. It was meant for a different place. God says it this way in Hebrews chapter 13. He says, for this world is not our permanent home. You're looking forward to a home yet to come. Colossians 2 says, or 3 says it this way. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life was hidden in Christ, uh, hidden with Christ in God. You know what this is saying? This is talking specifically about what happens at the moment of salvation. Because, because we don't meet the standard of perfection, because we're sinful and we don't qualify to be able to have a relationship with God or to be able to go into God's heaven when, when our time is done, At the moment of salvation, here's what happens. Your life, all of your guilt, all of your shame, all the things you said, the things you did, the places you went, the stuff you're not proud of, it all gets hidden in Christ. Christ. Christ covers it, he hides it. And I want you to notice what happens next. What happens then when we die? Verse four, for when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what does this mean? It means that, that in, in salvation, what happens at the moment of salvation, when you trust in Christ, that all of that stuff gets hidden with Christ, it gets covered by Christ. And then when you get to heaven, God doesn't go, all right, now put him up on the pedestal, let's all point and laugh. No, 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 that's not what happens. Because you are hidden in Christ, then, when Christ, who is our life, appears at the second coming, or when we get to heaven then we appear with him in glory. What that means is, is that we now no longer have this stuff that was hidden in Christ. It's been transformed. It's been changed into something that is new and altogether different. The Bible says that we are a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The Bible says that God separates us as far as our sin, as far as the East is from the West. And so what happens when at the moment of salvation, our life becomes hidden in Christ. And when the time comes that our life on earth is done, or God comes back and takes us home, when we get to heaven, we don't just show up as as us. No, no, no. we show up as, as Christ glorified in us and we live in that we have the same perfect standard and the same perfection, beauty, and holiness that Christ has. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter six. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. No, don't do that, don't do that. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. What is God saying again and again and again? He's saying, this world is not your home. You are living suspended between two advents. And if you will anchor yourself to me, you can live secured with hope in your hand. I love the way the hymnal writer put it. I'm gonna make some, some gray hairs happy here. He says this, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And the angels can beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. And so over the last year, I felt compelled to, to lead us as a church through, through this season of Advent. And that we do, here's, here's what I hope for us. I hope that we can do this. I hope that we can reclaim the meaning of Advent to refresh your hope in the return of Jesus. That's what I'm hoping that we can do together. We're gonna do this by doing a couple of things. Number one, we're gonna spend the next three weeks in this series called In the Waiting, learning how do we live in the waiting? We're stuck, suspended between these two advents, so how do we live in the waiting of what God wants to be? And we're gonna look at three different perspectives that are gonna help shape how as an understanding of these two admins shape the way that we encounter and interact and go through the things of our life that affect the way that we wait. And the second thing that we're gonna do, I'm kind of excited to announce this to you and, and a little nervous as well. Um, it's the first time that, that I've ever felt God leading me to, to write something. Um, and so um, actually Jessica and I both felt kind of compelled to, to work on this um, all the way back in, uh, in the springtime. And, uh, and so we're gonna be making for free available to you today a 30-day devotional that will help you navigate and walk through this Advent season. And as you go through this, there's gonna be a couple of things, uh, five things that you're gonna recognize and understand that Advent reveals as we talk about the first and the second Advent. And so you can download this. There's a QR code on your handout. We're gonna send text messages and emails and all that stuff with the link. Um, but but th- this is the image you'll get once you download it. And the whole point is to help you have a better appreciation of the hope that we can have in the second Advent by going back and looking at things from the first advent and seeing how one springboards us into the other. And as we close out our time together today, here's what my hope would be for you. My hope for you would be that that you could realize that this world really isn't your home. That God never created us really for this place. God created us for paradise. And as long as we're here, we ought to feel a certain tension. A tension that on one hand says, Lord, I can't wait till you come and all the wrongs are made right. But on the other hand, we say, God, I don't want you to come just yet because I got some people in my life that are close to me, but far from you. And before you come, I want them to have the opportunity to receive your grace and receive your forgiveness where their life could be hidden in Christ like we talked about today. So that they don't experience God treading the wine presses of his wrath upon them, but instead being able to experience the grace and forgiveness of God that God has freely lavished, not just to a small group of people. It's good news and it's hope to all the world, to all people, including you. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening!